there's a lot of excitement around, you know, machine learning, AI and all of that, you know, all of the businesses want to get in. The truth of the matter, though, is that it really is kind of a hierarchy, right? And there is this, uh, you know, hierarchy of AI needs in some ways. There's an article on Hafernet as well about this. But basically, you want to be effective in each one of the stages of building that function. So it starts really with data, right? And there's a lot of emphasis on AI and machine learning because it's exciting. But the truth of the matter is that the bread and butter of it is really actually good data. And how do you get to good data? You get to good data by excellent instrumentation. I wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading data specialist recruitment business. They are experts in recruitment strategy and delivery for analytics and data teams. They are the go-to recruitment business for all your data roles in Australia, and they can help both with permanent hires and short-term project-focused data resources. I've used Talent Insights in the past, and I've always found them fantastic to work with. Visit them at talentinsights.com.au. Introducing an exclusive new webinar series on advancing AI. It's available only online. It won't be released through the podcast, but you can join live to these webinars. So join us over breakfast from February to April by signing up in the link in the show notes. We will be interviewing leaders in the data and AI space. They will guide you through the hype and maze of technology to achieve the business transformation we all want from AI. Whether you're looking to leverage AI to optimize the customer experience or to improve your business operations, this series underpins the core elements crucial to your company's AI strategy. Featuring guests from around the globe, including people from companies like NAB, Finair, Woodside, etc. Check out the schedule, sign up through the link in the show notes, or visit datafuturology.com for more information. I'm super excited to bring you this new series. Hope to see you there. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Data Futurology, where we speak with leaders and executives in the machine learning, AI, and data science space to discuss the issues and the challenges that everyone who is leading these areas is facing. And we seek to bring you points of views, experience, and insights from these people from all, all over the world. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. And today we're going to be talking about effective data science. Um, and Farhan, he was a senior data scientist at Netflix and is now a senior data scientist at Apple. So obviously huge credentials and it's great that he gets to join us. He did a PhD in neuroscience and has worked in both research and industry for a while. And those two being his latest and current roles. We are yeah, very excited to have Farhan on the show today. How are you going, mate? Fantastic. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and I'm uh, excited to share with you some of the insights. Hopefully it'll be useful for uh, the audience. Yeah, definitely. So Farhan, could you kick us off? Could you tell us a little bit about your, your role at the moment and a bit about how you got there? Sure, sure. sure. Um, so I'm, uh, I've been in, at Apple for about two years now um, in the search ads uh, platform team. Um, so for those of you who are iPhone uh, users, and I hope it's a lot of you, um, if you go into the app store and you go into the search, um, you'll, you'll find that when you're looking for an app, uh, you do get a sponsored search result, uh, which is an ad. Um, and, and we work on a, a lot of uh, personalization problems there to try to optimize uh, the advertisement for your taste. Um, so if you're a gamer and you're into car racing, or if you're a gamer and you're into, you know, strategy game, we hope that we would uh, personalize that ad towards you. 
Um, so that's uh, that's one of the hats that I wear in my role. Um, and then there's a significant part of my role that's also works on uh, machine learning architecture experimentation. Um, so that's been uh, uh, something that I've been doing even in my previous role at Netflix, where I was doing content demand modeling. Um, we had you know a lot of models there, and uh, we really had a problem of how do we deploy models efficiently. And um, in order to solve that one, um, I had built a, a, a model deployment framework. Um, and so I, I tend to, to, to always have this kind of dual role where I'm, I'm doing some machine learning architecture as well as doing um, the sort of individual personalization of machine learning models. Man, that is great. Um, and, and definitely on the, on the deployment side, uh, there's so much, so much activity going on in that, in that space. And, and it's, yeah. it's an area that is improving in Australia, uh, but at least in Australia, we, we definitely have a, a while to go. And we've done polls in previous webinars asking about how many models organizations have in production. And um, the majority seem to be in the low single digit. And they, yeah. they point at the um, the path to production as as a key key barrier. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah no, that's yeah. I think Sorry, one of the things that ends up happening in a lot of organizations that are sort of either worldwide or they have a worldwide presence, um, it's an interesting problem where you know we always struggle between should we have a global model or should we have a local mm. model, um, and and it's 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 both an algorithmic choice and it's also an operational choice and. A number of times, each market is super different. And so you have to really tune your models towards a particular market. You may even have data sources that are different by market. Um, and in those, in those situations, it makes sense to have models that, that span uh, across other um, countries. And so if that's the case, then you end up having this proliferation of models. And we've seen it uh, you know, in multiple domains. Um, I was in consulting before uh, Netflix and there we would have uh, you know, three months projects in different domains. So I've seen this happen a lot in the automotive space in the telecommunication space and so on. Um, you, know, you would have a client that was uh, operating in say 140 countries. Um, and, you know, wow. you could group some of those countries together, but you still have that proliferation problem. But yeah, operationalization of models is definitely a huge, um, huge area. And there are there's a lot of startup activity in, in Silicon Valley uh, to solve this problem. Yeah, definitely. Hot, hot area. And and um, for, for a lot of people, they think of the holy grail when they have to create so many models. They think about, you know, auto ML tools to to help create them create them quickly um and and obviously there the the data availability and the data quality uh, have such a huge um role to play but what what is your view on on auto ml approaches in general no i think as um as as ml matures um you know it's becoming commoditized so you have simple libraries which basically means more people can come in and and do some of the simple stuff that's uh easily sort of sort of black box ai in some ways you can make a function call and you can get your prediction um and i think now more and more even with architecture search and so on with neural networks you can have auto ml do a lot of things that are um, that that works straight out the box. You have Google's Cloud AI that does uh, even tabular data and competed in a Kaggle competition actually, and and placed fairly well, uh, mm. not among the top, but fairly well. Um, and and so that was pretty impressive to see. So you know that this is this is coming, right? It's it's commoditized at this point, and it's going to uh, the automation is coming, and it's going to get better and better. But one of the things that I think 
what ends up happening and, the, and this gets back at, at what actually data science is and how to do effective data science. Uh, part of that is how you combine um, you know, the, the, the domain expertise, the business acumen, those things that you get from the business that you can then apply to, to your machine learning when you're doing it for that particular business. And those are the subtleties that AutoML, it'll be difficult to capture. Eventually, you probably would be able to capture, but they're sometimes difficult to capture. And these are things like, you know, how do you even do, we have even automated feature engineering. And there are times when there's essential business domain knowledge that's required for you to actually do the correct feature engineering that then, uh, you know, will give you a good model. I mean, it's a classic thing of garbage in, garbage out. And and the the key thing that humans, I think, help doing, like a human data scientist will help you do, is actually to identify what garbage is when you're, mm-hmm. when you're talking about the system. Because um, that's when you have, you know about the, the business and you understand the data and then you are, um, uh, you know, you're using that knowledge to come up with uh, inputs that are meaningful for the model. They'll then produce meaningful outputs. Man, that is great. Such such an awesome overview. Um, and I might I might um take us to the to the uh, to the topic and ask you sort of a uh, an entry question to effective data science. Uh, yeah. What what are some of the some or how do you define effective data science? And what are some of the areas yeah. that you see as important there? Yeah, I think I mean when I th- when I talk about effective data science, and I'm, we're specifically talking about data science, which is is that combination of of sort of um, machine learning and math and statistics and 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 the business domain knowledge, right? And it's purely doing sort of machine learning and AI for a particular purpose, which is to give you to add value to your business. And so when I when when I talk about effective data science, it's really about seeing um, in that. In that sense, how do you come up with a process or a data science function um, that brings that value to your business? And there's a lot of excitement around, you know, machine learning, AI, and all of that. You know, all of the businesses want to get in. The truth of the matter, though, is that it really is kind of a hierarchy, right? And there is this, uh, you know, hierarchy of AI needs in some ways. There's an article on Hackernet as well about this. But basically, you want to be effective in each one of the stages of building that function. So it starts really with data, right? And there's a lot of emphasis on AI and machine learning because it's exciting. But the truth of the matter is that the bread and butter of it is really actually good data. And how do you get to good data? You get to good data by excellent instrumentation. So that means you're literally logging everything and you're logging it well And then you build on top of that instrumentation and you say, do I have the kind of data architecture that I need that ingests all of this information, organizes as well, and puts it into a situation that a data scientist can easily query and build models off of or have analysis to do? Um, And you want to, of course, avoid as much as possible, um, you know, doing data engineering every single time there's an iteration of modeling. And that's one of our questions in the poll, right? Like is uh, that, 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 that we had put, uh, put in. And so I think in terms of effective data science, I think you, you want each function to be doing, um, you know, what their ex- domain expertise are. And, and you want as little sort of cross-functional, um, you know, actual contribution. You want cross-functional cooperation, although not necessarily people leaning over and onto the keyboard, right? Um, and, and I think that's where the, the effectiveness comes in. So if you have good data, you have good data architecture, and you're supplying your data scientists with 
sort of clean data. And it's never going to be true. It's never going to be 100%. Mm. But the best effort that you can get to, um, it minimizes the time that a data scientist, for example, would spend uh, in making sure, you know, the data is in the shape or the form that they need and is clean and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's trustworthy data that they can then put into their models and, and move on. And then from there, of course, it goes into modeling and, and modeling, it's, it's like it's its own beast, right? Um, and, and, yeah. you, and you, 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 obviously there's excitement again around the most complex method and, and, and deep learning and all of that. Um, like with many things, I think common sense and setting baselines is super important as well. So you you want to construct something that starts super simple, you know, make sure that the assumptions you're making about your workflow and your data are correct assumptions. And then from there, um, from there you, you, you build off of that and you get more complex and you say, okay, um, you know, I'm gonna try more complex methods to try to push the accuracy and, and add more value. So that's sort of a, a broad overview of saying, you know, functionally you want each one of these bits to be effective. And then overall as a process, uh, you have trust because you've kind of built it up in a modular fashion. In the software engineering world, you have, you know, test-driven development. And in some ways you can think of this in terms of a macro level, it's like test-driven, uh, you know, uh, development where you're basically building each little function, testing it uh, and, and making sure it's good and then building on, on top of that. That's great, man. That is, that is awesome. And it's definitely um, something that uh, at least in, in Australia, we're, we're grappling with and, and the, the larger organizations are leading the charge here uh, on exactly what you're, you're saying, which is how to create an, an effective data science organization or, or capability within your organization, but also how to do that at scale in a way that's, right. you know, um, effective and repeatable and, and that you can trust the, the process. Um, because a lot of it at the moment for, for us, at least, uh, it seems to be, it's, it's, it's improving, but it's, it's going from kind of like a cottage industry um, sure. where, you know, like you'd have, you'd have a, a, a team that's, that's trying to do it themselves and, and the processes are not very well defined and it doesn't have much scale. Uh, often the products are good. They're making business impact, but it's not, it's not something that, that you're getting uh, organization, like a capability organized at scale in a way that's effective. Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah. yeah, except for, for larger organizations here. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the history of data science is actually from actuarial sciences. And you know that a lot of like insurance companies and stuff had these departments 30, 40 years ago. Um, I think the, the sort of revolution has really actually been uh, is, is scale. And, and I, I, I work in ads and I, I will actually attribute some of that to ads, right? So yeah. the Facebooks and Googles of the world, um, you know, with ad revenue and the scale that they brought um, meant that there was actual like you know money to be spent in terms of developing these uh, processes and that's like a whole um you know area that got developed and because it required scale given the the size of the data that these companies were were generating and also the revenues that that, that were being generated by that size of data um and i think it 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 takes a level of um you know organizational size to get to a point where the scale is necessary. Mm -hmm. um, and, and data science can be done in, in, in both that scaled fashion as well as in that kind of local fashion. And there's nothing, there's no harm in, in, in having something that's like, 
you know, an R script that just produces a lot of value. I've seen that happen at, at organizations and, and it can be very, very useful. Um, of course, as your organization grows and your data science needs grow and you actually understand that I can produce value from, from this, from doing AI and machine learning on data, um, that's when you say, how do I repeat this? How do I make this into a process that can be repeated and, and is scalable? Yeah, a hundred, a hundred percent, and that that is awesome, and that's definitely, um, yeah, obviously, great, great topic for for today. Um, so, do you think we should we should start at the at the at the input side, starting with the, with the data quality and moving along the chain, or starting at the end? Do you have a, a preference? No, we can start. Yeah, we can start in the beginning. Uh, make the beginning the beginning. So. Yep. Brilliant. Um, so on the on the um, on the on the data side, data quality, uh, data input on the instrumentation side, could you tell yeah. us a bit more about uh, what good looks like in that domain? Yeah, hundred percent. So I think um, it, it's an. I would say it's an often neglected kind of uh, area. Um, and, and I think data engineers and data architects are super important. Um, again, as I said, the, the garbage, gar garbage in, garbage out problem. Um, we haven't, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of activity around uh, ML ops, so machine learning operations and, and, and that, that kind of thing that we talked about before. Um, there, there is, however, somewhat of a dearth of tools that uh, essentially verify how good your pipeline is, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and when I talk about pipelines, what it means is you start from instrumentation, which means you have a system that you, where you're logging everything. And from there, you're building pipelines that basically synthesize that information into sort of consumable, you know, you could call it tables or hive tables or so on. Um, and, and, and that's where you want to know that that process is good. And, uh, you know, there are many, I've seen many approaches to this, you know, people mm -hmm. use many tools and so on. Um, there isn't really like a, a standard that I've seen necessarily yeah. uh, for data quality. And, and it's actually a very difficult thing to come up with. Yeah. And the reason why it's very difficult is because it's domain specific. Um, and there's certain choices that people make in terms of do you store your missing information as nulls to store them as mm. minus ones because that's better for you? Like there's things that you do um, and choices that you make that make it very arbitrary in terms of what the actual tests are. So I think one of the things that, that you can do as an organization and that's sort of customized to your approach to doing the instrumentation and the data pipelines is essentially to say, I'm going to define my own unit tests if you want. And these are data unit tests. I mean, in software, we talk about unit tests as being um, you know, examples that we give to this test to say, uh, verify this output given this input. Um, and, and a very similar approach can be applied to data as well, because um, you, know, you, can, you can understand that there's a transformation that happens when you're going from you know, stage A of the pipeline to stage B. Um, and I, I think the good part, uh, when you get to good, essentially means that uh, you have enough faith that your, your alerts in there are going to uh, point you to problems and be able to not go silent. So silent failures can be very, very dangerous. I mean, that's one of the most dangerous things, right? Um, you, you don't know that, you know, your table has not been refreshing for three weeks and you're, yeah. you're working on stale, stale data. Um, those kind of things are the things that you definitely want to avoid. 
Uh, and the way to avoid them is essentially to put sensible checks in place with alerting and monitoring. Um, though there isn't necessarily a product that comes to mind, there are lots yeah. of them. Um, but I think it's an area that is necessary. Um, and I think some kind of integrated method where we, where we go up the chain, you know, you get a weird prediction. Can you, can you come back, come back down and, and figure out where the problem lies? Is it in the algorithm? Is it in the pipeline and so on? Um, so we start with that from the, from the data pipeline part. Um, and then, and then now if we move to the, to, to the doing the, the modeling and, and saying how, to, how, what does good look like there? Mm-hmm. Um, so one part of it is obviously when you operationalize, um, you know, a data science model and, and we use a lot of these verbs that we can't, we don't have a good one productionalized operationalize. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of options there. Yes. Um, but um but 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 essentially, uh, when you're doing that, what you do want to have are mechanisms of versioning, uh, and versioning is definitely on both ends: model versioning as well as feature versioning. Right? Mm. Um, you want to know, uh, you know, from a uh, as a data scientist, you want to know which version of a feature I was uh, I was given, and and feature versioning is is super important because you want to understand was it transformed, was it not transformed, and so on. Um, and then, you know, most of these models have this component of regular training. And when you have regular training and you are, you know, putting into production a model, let's say if you're doing daily training, even if you're doing weekly training, you definitely have to have some kind of, you know, model hosting service uh, that basically says, okay, I can keep track of which model is currently being served. And I've seen this done well in the in the sense that you can have model hosting services that associate uh, metadata together with a produced model um, that basically now I can go and query from the model hosting service and say, can you tell me what's the metadata or what version does this model particularly have? And I know that I want to get the one that's the latest. So that's the latest train one. And I think there you're you're doing you're doing this job well, where you're basically tracking exactly which model was being used, what was trained, when was it trained, what was the training period and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so, so that's kind of on the operational side, right? Um, there's also like the effectiveness of your actual, you know, doing your data science, so doing your model and, and saying, does it drive value or not? And there are a lot of choices to be made there. And, and typically what you do want to do is, again, start from, sort of from the basics, right? Um, you have a, a continuous regression problems, like literally just try regression, you know, yeah. just try regression. Um, but then you have more complex prob- problems. So I work on personalization, um, you know, and, and now you get into like, uh, you know, arguments like, should I use, uh, you know, matrix factorization? Should I use uh, deep neural networks? And how should I go about uh, setting time limits on saying how much iteration am I going to do and when is good good enough? Now, this is where you bring in sort of the business acumen, the collaboration side of things, right? Um, and, and some of the ways I've seen that organized is uh, you will potentially work with a product manager um, and the product manager together with leadership and yourself, you define uh, what you think is actually good enough when we talk about predictions. And, um, and, and, and the effective part of it is really to say like, how soon can you get there? And, and I, I would say also with parsimony, right? Like you, can you get there 
in the simplest means. You don't need to, you know, go for the for the most um, complex method. Um, and and typically starting there will help ease all of the pain afterwards, which means debugging, monitoring, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so as a simple example, you have regression coefficients. You could just look at those. <laughs> Um, you know, yeah. there's a lot of like AI explainability tools out now as well. So you can use those for complex models. Um, but again, starting simple is, is definitely better. So you, you don't, you don't have to go in that direction, but if you needed to, you know, there are tools available for that as well. It's awesome, man. And what is, what is the start of the, of the project look like in terms of that definition with the, with a product owner of saying what, what should be done? Uh, what is the benchmark? How does that process um, usually work? Yeah. So I think um, I've seen it done a few ways in different organizations, right? So um, there's sort of a bottom up and top down kind of way of uh, how these things come about. So uh, let's say you're working on some product and, and, and now, um, you know, there's a desire for a new feature. Mm. Now that new feature can be driven either by uh, sort of the, the, the data scientist having worked already on one part of the model and noticing that, okay, we have this piece of data and I think that I can make this other thing happen, right? And, and we can make it concrete. So for example, uh, you know, we say that uh, I've seen that I can use uh, another piece of data uh, to improve personalization. And, um, but it will require, let's say, uh, some kind of coordination with another team um, to make sure that it's good to, to be used, right? So that would be sort of a bottom-up approach where, where, the, where the data scientist says, I, I noticed there is this thing. I'm not sure if I can use it. I'm going to work with my product manager and leadership to say, um, is this something good to add? Can we, can we do this? Are we, are we good on that? Um, and then, and then of course, there's a there's a sort of top-down approach, which is like leadership wants to take a particular direction, um, and uh, you know, instead of showing one ad, they want to show two ads now. Um, and so now, you come back and you say, how do I rank these two ads, for example, right? Um, and so now this becomes a, a data science problem that's brought to you, which is. I want the top two ads and you have position one and two, and you know that position one has a, has a, just a position bias. People tend to click the first thing first, right? Yeah. So now, now you're going to work on that problem. And then, um, you know, you're going to work with your product manager, obviously to define the requirements, uh, you know, uh, is it best to show, for example, um, you know, a product that you think will have lower take rate and give it a benefit of a, of a first position bias, mm. uh, would you do that or not? These are the kinds of questions that product can help you answer, right? Um, because you can do the math, you can do the, the, the modeling and you can come up with a ranking and that ranking can be, you know, most relevant first, um, uh, you know, most personalized first, um, you know, contextually the most relevant one first. Um, but all of those choices, then you work with your product manager to say, what are these specific um, requirements? So that's great. Yeah, I really like bringing that sort of that commercial lens and that business business view uh, to to work closely with the with the data scientists. And uh, what about uh, what about approaches to get the the customer the customer's perspective in or customer requests for new features? Um, is there, have you seen good avenues to, to bring in the um, requests from customers? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, there's, 
there's been uh, you know efforts. Uh, so so Netflix would be my example there, mm-hmm. right? Like you have um, you know product recommendations, you have uh, content recommendations. Please bring this movie back. Please don't take this movie away. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you not make this autoplay because it's really annoying? Uh, like you know stuff like that, yeah. right? Um, and it, actually, it's interesting because when you live in an, uh, in a world where you're doing A/B testing. Mm-hmm. Um, you really have to make sure that that anecdotal, uh, you know, evidence yes. that you get um, is not necessarily broadly applied. Um, and and here's an interesting thing where you mm. you I personally found some some features very annoying, right? Um, and I said, how could we possibly be winners in an A/B test? But they are winners in an A/B test. And if they're winners in an A/B test, and you're doing you know, you know, science-based sort of development and and and, and progression. Um, that's the the numbers sort of speak for themselves because you are taking aggregates and you're saying that my metrics improve when I add this feature or when I don't add this feature. Um, so it, I, I would say that the customer feedback is like definitely it's an important thing to take into account. But probably A/B testing trumps that uh, to some extent. Now the problem with though is that when we do do A-B testing, right, we're testing ideas that are sort of, um, you know, ingrown within the organization, like people yep. coming up with these ideas and saying there's an A-B test. Um, you can definitely have, you know, customer input come in and, and say, okay, there's this other feature. The other place that I've really seen customer feedback work um, is in actually identifying uh, like issues, right? So, mm-hmm. Um, you'll see a, uh, um, some kind of blog articles about uh, certain companies where you will get uh, text analysis of reviews on Twitter um, that people will use to then go back and say, oh, that recommendation doesn't actually look so good, um, you know, or that part of the video was actually, you know, um, had lower bit rate or something like that. So you, you have some problems that you can identify. And, and so I think um, you do get some input, but though I would say it's probably uh, like a smaller part of that input. And the second part of it, that the AB testing metrics sort of speak for themselves, right? So that's actually is customer feedback. You know, is this, is this ranking algorithm better than this? I don't, I don't necessarily need to go to a user and ask them that. I can actually put it out into an A-B test and actually test whether that's the case or not. And, and I think um, A-B testing gives us that power to sort of scale customer feedback uh, without having to actually you know, do interviews. Though anecdotal interviews do help. And, and we, uh, you know, at Netflix, for example, there's actually an, a consumer insights team. And that consumer insights okay. team uh, will 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 uh, run interviews and 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 bring feedback uh, back to the product and and that can drive features and so on yeah that makes sense that's really good and and in your experience is the 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 aim of of a b testing is it to give one set of product features to everyone or or would they be different product features that are enabled for different types of users um, so, I mean, I think the way, you know, the idea of A-B testing is essentially to start out small and then you scale your test, right? So mm. there are a lot of A-B testing involves ramping. So essentially what you will do is you will start with a very small subset because uh, in, in systems where you have like, you know, revenue involved, 
uh, you obviously don't want to you know throw in a new feature and put a lot of people in that um, in that bucket. So you start out small, you ramp up, and as you ramp up, you actually see the effect of your test, and uh, that's where you're saying you're applying that treatment sort of to a small set of people, and then you're growing that. Um, and in, if you're asking specifically in terms of the same feature, there's obviously that personalization side, right? Mm. Um, so to some extent, uh, you know, uh, you can read a, you know, a, t- a tech blog article about artwork uh, personalization at Netflix. So um, yes. they're basically, um, you know, you and I would not get the same, uh, cover art for a particular movie yep. because um, you know the, one is better for you than 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 me. Um, I've noticed that and, with, and, between the the account of my my wife and I having the same movie, yeah, <laughs> completely different. Um, but but yeah. in that case, it's the it's essentially the the same product feature. Uh, say that in this case, the cover art that's personalized for the individual, um, right. uh, which I guess would be one one one. Avenue, but the other one would be having different features for different types of users. Um, okay. Are there uh, and do, do you, um, is that something that you've seen in your experience? Um, n- not not in terms of um, you know going to going forward persist in like you know persisting mm-hmm. like you're gonna get you know uh, this extra button forever, and I'm not going to get it. That uh, yeah. that I don't think so because you would want pro- you want consistency across your product because it's very difficult to pro- like to evolve uh, different versions of that particular product. Um, so I think personalized experience basically means that mm. uh, you have a wireframe that's consistent, but within that wireframe, the content that you put in, uh, you know, the buttons blue or the buttons red depends on on your preference. And, and uh, I, I think the A-B test driven development, I mean, you definitely want to keep that consistency so that you can track performance and track the metrics as, as they're going uh, up, hopefully up. Yeah, yeah. that's great. And um, Georgie on the chat uh, pointed out that, um, or, or that A-B testing generally helps you improve your, your, your features and your, your current product, um, but that there would be other avenues um, that help you create new products and that, that right. as as you were saying that like, that could be that could be bottom up it could be top down it could be from yeah. from a, a market research area um, yeah. is that is that how you see the the distinction yeah absolutely I mean I think um, you know AV testing helps you test ideas and and evolve systems um, you know so fine-tuning a direction that you're already on testing new ideas as well. Um, but then, yes, obviously, there is this other creative process, which is how do we come up with an entirely new set of products? Um, and, and we kind of get into the entrepreneurial area there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Amazon would be your best example of, of something like that, right? They are, have uh, their hands in everything um, sure. so from drone delivery to grocery delivery to your slippers being dri- delivered to, I don't know, car buying probably soon or something like that. So Right. Yeah. yeah. And um, <laughs> so cre- have, have all the products and then, <laughs> and then yep. yeah, deliver all the products and on the, on the AWS side, build all the products, <laughs> offer right. everything. Um, right. Exactly. So I might, I might close the poll now. So we had a, a 60, about 60% of people answered the poll. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll go through the, answers 
So the first question was, what percentage of your time do you spend on data engineering versus data science tasks? Uh, and 36% of people said it was 50-50 between data engineering and data science. Um, that's, that's really, really interesting. And then the second highest voted was 80% on data science, 80% of the time on data engineering and 20% on data science. Um, yep. any, any thoughts or comments there? That's interesting, Ryan? actually. I mean, I, I would have definitely expected 80-20. That's a sort of classic uh, fit. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see that most of the participants here are enjoying a nice data science experience with doing minimal engineering while producing their models. And maybe I want to work where you work. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, but, I feel the uh, same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think it's, uh, it's interesting that, um, I mean, it's, it is, it is one poll. I, I think perhaps one of the things that, um, you know, would be interesting to know is if things have evolved to a point where, um, you know, data engineering, I'm hoping their products have evolved to prob to a point where that's now commoditized. And if that's more commoditized, then hopefully we would get to a point where, uh, we can actually get to the inverse of that, right? We can get to 2080 where we're we're only doing 20% of our time uh, engineering and then uh, doing data science tasks for the rest of it. And that's specifically for the data science function. There's nothing, um, I, as I, I've actually emphasized that the data engineering uh, roles are super important for any organization. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, it'll be interesting because the... As you, as you were saying before, as the data science um, or as the the algorithm application of algorithms in a, in a particular organization, as that gets more automated, um, then the the bits that would be left are around in bringing the domain knowledge into into the data uh, yeah. and the and the production side. Um, do you see do you see any any other components um, that that would be I guess left in the data science arena once state engineering improves. Um, why? What? What would be? What would people be spending their time on once the the data is of a high quality and and available? Well, I mean, I think uh, from a data science perspective, I think it affords you the luxury of um, you know diving deep into the models and really focusing on the algorithms to improve predictions and so on, right? Um, so I think in that sense, it's, 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 a, it's the most valuable thing you can do, which is um, if, if you have a data science function, you entirely dedicate that data science function to, to getting you to the best machine learning solutions for your organization. Um, and, and, you know, there's that automated ML side, obviously. Um, and, and yes, that will evolve and it will get better. And, you know, I'm not... I don't see uh, data scientists going out of business anytime soon, though. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but, but at the same time, though, I think um, the next focus for this would be definitely doing things like, uh, you know, data engineering automation, um, things like automated uh, exploratory data analysis. Hmm. Um, so it's a very interesting feature, even in Google Sheets that you can see, which is um, you can say get data insights from it. And it will attempt to to make you know reasonable pivots and draw figures and make averages. Um, so you could think of it as more like a automated pivot table kind of uh, situation where it actually is trying to figure out a few um, 
a few things from your data by just looking at the the table that you've provided. I mean, that's a direction in which you're saying, okay, exploratory data analysis is now going to be potentially automated, well, which I think is super cool um, because uh, you, you'll spend a lot of time doing that. But if you can actually get that in an automated way, I think that's that's uh, a huge time saver. Yeah, huge. That's great. Thank you. Uh, the second the second question was the what percentage of your time do you spend applying existing algorithms uh, versus developing new algorithms and the uh, the highest voted one was 80% of the time applying um, and 20% developing so sort of r&d yeah. uh, any any thoughts there yeah, I think I, that's pretty consistent this time, I think, with, with what we talked about. Um, I, I think that, uh, again, part of doing effective data science is, is doing it in a timely fashion. And, and if you have um, no need to reinvent the wheel, then you shouldn't. And you can use the simplest approach. The simplest approaches are pretty commoditized. So we don't necessarily need to go in and, and modify them. Now, there's one part of this I would say that, um, you know, just because those uh, techniques do exist, um, using them in a blind fashion, uh, it can potentially work, but when things go wrong, that's when you will actually have an issue. So if you have prediction drift, if you have underestimation problems, if you have overestimation problems, you really need to understand uh, some detail about your actual algorithm, the data going in, uh, how you've set things up, what are the parameters. Um, I mean, in, in the worst case, I've seen examples of um, you know, people treating it as a black box with completely the incorrect uh, mm. parameters for their data set, right? And and in the worst case, you can do that. Um, so I think there is, yes, you can apply current existing algorithms, but I do think that the onus lies on the data scientist to say that I, I apply them in an informed way. Um, you don't inform, you don't apply them blindly. That's great. Yeah, very, um, very wise words there. Don't, don't do kind of like the point and shoot. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's great. Um, yep. Thank you. And uh, the other question, the third question was, is there a data architect in your organization? So 50% of people said yes, 36% um, said no, and 14 said not sure. Um, okay. So almost almost a 50-50 split between between yes and no slash no, not sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So could you, for the people that don't know, could you tell us what, what would be the role of a, of a data architect and then, and then some of the benefits uh, of, yeah. of having one? Um, so yeah, I can give you a very concrete example of this one, which is like, um, let's say that you, um, you know, you're somebody like uh, Netflix that's trying to predict, um, you know, um, whether somebody's going to click on a movie or not. Um, or if you're Amazon and you're trying to figure out if someone is going to click on this particular product or not. And, and you've received a new data source, right? And this new data source, um, you know, tells you, let's say, about the popularity of a particular product. Um, and now, yes, there's a single simple stream of data, but if let's say that um, you know, in, in terms of understanding the popularity of this data you have uh, of this new feature, you actually have this available in multiple languages across multiple countries at different time scales. Uh, how do you organize this data to make it useful for say your predictive model, mm -hmm. right? And now that's where the data architect's job comes in. At what granularity should they store it? Um, you know, how should they normalize the data? 
what's going to be the most effective way in which you can apply efficient joins to join it to your other data set and so on. So if you were to do this in an uninformed way, um, all that will happen is that yes, you might be able to connect this new feature to the existing data set that you have, but the you will go about it in a very roundabout fashion and you'll probably be pretty inefficient on it. And then uh, what's worse about doing it the bad way is essentially that as this data accumulates, it's going to be a major um, effort to actually transform it or shift it to an architecture that's actually easily queryable and is amenable to doing data science or testing of that feature. Um, and so that's where the role of the data architect comes in. And, and yes, the data engineer and data architect role kind of the lines are blurry there. Uh, I, when I talk about data architecture, I really talk about how do I take this data and what's the organization of my tables? How do I connect them and so on? Yeah, that's um, so it, it would definitely help help um, make the data science teams more productive to bring yeah. on uh, repeatability and scalability because um, yeah. the, the pre-work is is being centralized and you get right. good, good inputs into into yeah. the process. Yeah, we haven't actually talked about even one sort of layer before the data sciences because like we actually did talk about data analytics in the in the title of the talk, right? So, so I do actually think that like the analytics comes even before uh, like doing the AI or the ML, right? Um, and that's where if if this new data source, let's say, was was organized well, um, I can just put that data on a dashboard and you mm -hmm. can now see that pretty well, right? And if you hadn't organized it, uh, I can't even get that insight uh, as quickly as I could if it was it was organized. Um, right and so up. I think in that sense, like you have analytics and then you have AI and it, and it, and all of the data architecture that's well done will help both of those functions. I am so glad you said that. <laughs> that's something <laughs> that uh, something definitely clo close to my heart uh, in the sense that um, I, I see uh, the my analytics team almost as the as the scouts. <laughs> That they go yeah. and that they they're trailblazing new, working closely with business to to find kind of new areas, um, help the business get quick answers and etc. And once there's a, a relatively well formed or uh, or an interesting problem that sort of gets gets passed to the data science team, and and we know that it'll take a bit longer to to have something great mm -hmm. out of the, the data science team in the sense that it's, you know, scalable and repeatable and, and um, passing benchmarks and things like that. But definitely mm -hmm. um, it's important, the different sides and how, and how, how crucial it is to have good data as the, as the right. input there. Yep. Yep. Uh, that's, that's awesome, man. And, and what would you say to, well, what advice would you say to people that are either um, starting a an analytics function in their organization, or that they're early in their in their journey, um, what would you what would you get them to to focus on or think about? Um, could be approaches or or roles or um, any any or anything really. Yeah, I think I mean you want to start with definitely your goals, right? Um, and uh, you can start in a place where you say. Uh, I think that we can do this using data. <laughs> and, um, and, and once you say that that's the case, then um, I really you know, like this sort of hypothesis-driven approach to even analytics, right? 
So in the beginning, you have a hypothesis. I have a hypothesis that um, you know I'm going to improve. Uh, let's say I'm a credit card company and I want to improve my, uh, you know, loan acceptance that I'm giving, uh, you know, reducing my uh, false positives. And how can I use my data to, to do that? And I think that's where you want to start with the question. And once you have the question, the solutions, it, it's, it's easier to start with a question rather than starting with the data. Right. So, and I think that's very important. So you, if you state the problem clearly, you will actually arrive at the solution a lot earlier. Um, and also if you're starting an analytics function, um, you definitely want to start with the data. You, you've got to start mm. uh, and know that you are actually logging and you have instrument, enough instrumentation in your systems that you have the data that you need. And then once you have that, um, I actually do think that analytics is really the first step, you know, just plot some stuff, <laughs> plot some stuff and look at it. Um, and it can tell you so much. Um, and, and that's part of the exploratory uh, sort of data analysis part, right? Which is um, start with a, uh, with, with knowing that you need to look at the data, you need to understand what the data is sort of telling you. And then you build off of that. Um, you're definitely, your approach should not be, um, we have data, we want to do AI. I mean, that's not, mm. that's not the approach, right? Um, you have data, you have a particular question. Now, once you have that question, now you ask yourself, uh, what expertise do I need in order to get this form of this data into a shape where it actually answers that question? That shape, it could take the shape of a prediction model. It could take the shape of a dashboard. Um, or it could just take the shape of a simple plot that's plotted on a regular basis. You know, that's that's what the dashboard is. But um, but yeah, so th th in that sense, sort of hypothesis-driven, question-driven analysis, um, I think helps you shape your strategy for the rest of it. Yeah, that's that's great, and that definitely um, yeah brings you close close to the business, and it means that you're working on on things that are value adding and and sort of real, real life problems, which is, which is great. Um, we do have a, a question um, the, from the audience that I haven't jumped into, but before we, we do that, um, I might ask you, what about uh, some, some advice for people who are uh, wanting to start their career in data science? So they might be mm -hmm. either um, learning data science or they uh, aspiring to, to become data scientists, or they might be, uh, people working in in business in a different function that are wanting to become better stakeholders of data science and and work right. uh, closely with those areas. Yeah, um, I think for those people, I mean, I think the advice would be slightly different for for people transitioning versus people who are going brand new into into data science. Um, I mean, one thing to definitely know is that for doing effective data science, there are those three components, which is sort of your computer science skills, your math and statistics skills, and then uh, your business acumen. And, uh, you know, what I see when people enter data science, so, you know, you get, you get a lot of science PhDs like myself uh, who enter data science, right? And one of the reasons why it's, it's, it's a good path for, for science PhDs is because we actually do do, um, we do do hypothesis-driven, um, you know, analysis and testing. Everything is hypothesis-driven when we're doing science. Um, and 
then if we're from more computational um, sort of areas, so for me, it was computational neuroscience. And I was work, uh, my research was at the intersection of biological vision and computer vision. And so um, I also had a background in computer science. So I think having you know, strong computer science fundamentals uh, is important, especially for you to be an effective data science scientist. Part of that is because you don't know where you're going to land. Are you going to land in a place where, you know, like some of our lucky attendants with, you know, mm. who have, uh, who only do 50% data engineering, you may mm. land in that situation and, and maybe you don't have to do as much uh, engineering before you can get to your data science. But at the same time, even to, you know, operationalize your models and um, to come up with architectures that are scalable where you will have an input. Yes, you would work with engineers, but you're part of that engineering org in that sense because you're producing the models. Um, you don't want to be in a place where you, develop your model and you throw it over to engineering and say, go productionalize this. I mean, you, that's typically a model that doesn't work. Um, mm. And so I think having a strong computer science fundamentals helps you uh, from the start. And of course, um, math, statistics, and probability help you really understand the data, understand the models, and having that AI training that's part of the computer science. When you bring all of that together, um, and then if you've done all of that in graduate school and you come to the business world and in industry, you can learn those, uh, those business domains and become experts in it. But we shouldn't discount that at all. I mean, I think if you've worked in one particular area in data science for a long time, um, not only uh, is it beneficial in terms of your familiarity with the data and so on, but you also have uh, more business acumen. So you can ask the right questions, you can debug faster and so on. Um, now, for the people who are transitioning, um, I mean, if data scientists exist in your in your org, um, I think the best way to is to is to just become friends with them, get a coffee, um, and actually figure out what their function is. Now, one having said that, there are a lot of in in different organizations there are a number of definitions of what a data scientist is. Um, and lots of them are sometimes not exactly like what we think of as the data science function. Um, so for example, I've definitely seen in organizations, data engineers being uh, classified as data scientists. And when I say that, all I yeah. mean is they aren't actively doing modeling, right? For me, the data scientist, one of the essential key things is, um, is that you, do, you actually do build models. Um, and then you also you also have data scientists who are like doing analytics, and that actually is a blurry line, right? You're doing data science when you're doing analysis that's producing some kind of insight that's being used by business, and you could just do analytics, and that would be fine, and you could have that data science. So if you are a person in an organization that's trying to transition to data science, understand what your business's data science function actually is, and are there multiple functions, and which of those functions do you actually are you interested in? Are you interested in building models? Are you interested in doing analytics? Or are you interested actually in digging into the data and organizing it and stuff? So that's, those are all choices that you have. And you have to understand for your business, for your particular business, what is the definition of the data scientist in that org? Um, and, and then from there you transition and you say, okay, yeah, this is sort of what I want to become. And then you need to obviously develop, potentially develop some skills if you're transitioning from a very different area. So I've definitely seen migrations from business analytics into full-on data science. Hmm. And so that transition probably is not a, not a, like a harsh one in that sense, because those people are already analyzing data 
and summarizing it and transforming it. Um, and then they transition into actually doing modeling and predictive work. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Um, one of the questions from from the audience was around the. Uh, this is from Jason. Hey, mate. Uh, was around the the recommendations um, that that can be done, and uh, the question is around what what happens when multiple people use the same account. Uh, and in the case of Jason, uh, him and his daughter would use the same the same account. Um, is that uh, how how problematic is that for for the recommendations and uh, and personalization? I, mean, I would put that question to Jason and say, how bad are your recommendations? And if they're bad. <laughs> The reason is you need to create a new profile for your daughter. Um, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I think um, in terms of personalization, like this kind of goes back to that customer feedback um, aspect, right? All of these systems that are, so I do personalization at Apple and even here, um, you know, the best that, like the best guess I have at what you like is the feedback you give me. You clicked, you didn't click. Now, I have no way to know that it was you or your daughter. Um, at least at Apple, we definitely don't know. Facebook, I can't say anything. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, given our privacy con constraints, we don't necessarily know. We All we know is that we received a click from this particular ID, right? And that's mm -hmm. it. Um, and so, yeah, I, it adds noise to the personalization algorithm. But um, if that's how you use the product, then maybe we're doing the right thing, you know? So if 80% of the time uh, Jason is using his uh, recommenders, uh, like using his account, and 20% of the time it's his daughter, um, one would hope that we'd get some kind of reasonable mix of recommendations that are okay for both of you, depending on usage. Um, but yeah, I'd recommend just getting a new profile. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. And um there, there's one one other question uh, from Naren, uh, who was she was asking about um, if you had the experience where you've been working on a on a problem, say an analysis or a development, and halfway through they stopped the the development or they stopped the project, um, and what what you would do in that case. Um, so I I asked her on the chat to see what what were some of the reasons um, and whether it was, you know, technical problems that made the solution not feasible or business value. Um, and uh, the, the scenario here, and obviously you can talk to, to another one, um, the scenario here is that the, the data wasn't able to answer the, the question or the problem in this, in this particular case. Uh, um, so, I mean, if, is the question really about uh, knowing when to abandon analyses or I don't know if that's the question. Yeah, it, it, uh, she's asking about what what would you do? How do you tackle this this scenario? Oh, and it could be okay. yeah, early abandon, which is you know saving yeah. effort or trying to to save it. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so if it if it's really about knowing when to abandon an effort, um, this was something that I I brought up earlier, which was when you said about um, you know what does good look like, mm. right? Um, and part of knowing what good looks like is agreeing upon. Uh, timelines and also mm -hmm. levels of performance that are acceptable, right? Within a reasonable time range. So you really want to do this upfront. Um, you don't want to, uh, you know, be eight months down the line and say, okay, well, I think uh, maybe we didn't want to do it for this long. Yes. So I, I think, uh, you know, there are different projects and they obviously it's, it's very subjective in terms of uh, the projects. 
that's the one of the other reasons to start simple. If mm-hmm. it's really taking you that long to get to uh, get to knowing that you are going to fail on this, uh, you need to fine tune your process. Um, and and it's a tired old saying in Silicon Valley, but you need to fail fast, and that's just mm-hmm. how it is. So yeah. Man, that is that is excellent, and definitely what um, at least what I recommend the the grads, the data science grads that come in, um, is when they're facing a problem uh, before they develop sort of the the understanding of of how to tackle different problems and how to make it simple, specific specifically how to make it, uh, the solution simple. I just tell them to build a, a ladder of uh, model complexity and start with the easiest one. Start with a linear regression, do, do, do a logistic regression, yeah. do a tree, do a forest, and um, right. and see see what you get. Uh, but stop at the at the earliest one that gives you a good good enough sol- solution. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Fahan, this has been awesome. Uh, the the hour definitely flew flew by. Uh, thank you yeah. so much for sharing your insights, your perspectives. Uh, it's it's been outstanding. Uh, thank you, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. All right, and thank you so much again. And and to the audience, thank you so much for joining. Uh, definitely a big thank you to our sponsor, Talent Insights, who has been supporting us for, for quite a while to help you bring this uh, content to, to you. So please show them some love. And um, we'll continue to do these episodes uh, Tuesdays, and thir- uh, Tuesdays and Fridays. Uh, come, come back for the next one. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Fahan, thanks so much again. Thank you. Bye-bye. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.